Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to our Lunch and Learn series. It's a pleasure to see you all on Zoom and a pleasure for all the people who, God willing, are gonna see this later online at Torah Anytime. I first of all wanna thank all of you for joining us for this Lunch and Learn. Uh, it's been a long pandemic and yet every single week you guys are here. You guys are awesome. You guys make this thing happen. I appreciate it. I appreciate all you who leave your Zoom cameras on so I can see your faces and I know that I'm talking to people and thank you for that. And I also want to thank the amazing staff at Partners Detroit and Yeshev Bet Yehuda for facilitating what I do and of course all the Torah teaching that I'm able to do. And I want to thank the amazing staff over at www.torahanytime.com. It's an app, it's a website. Now, for the first time ever, we're actually recording it besides on my Zoom, we're also recording it on a very high def camera that Torah Anytime just sent me. Okay, there we go. So I wanna talk for a moment about Torah Anytime. Torah Anytime is the biggest yeshiva in the whole wide world, okay? A yeshiva is a place where people come together to study Torah, right? So Torah Anytime is by far the biggest yeshiva in the whole wide world. Now I had the incredible honor and pleasure of meeting, <clears throat> excuse me, I had the incredible pleasure and honor of meeting Rabbi Shimon Kolyakov, who together with his brother, Rabbi Ruben Kolyakov, now they would both say, don't call me rabbi, I'm not a rabbi, but when you teach Torah, when you facilitate Torah teaching to that many people, you are a rabbi. So let me just blow your mind, let me blow your mind with a few stats about what Torah Anytime has been able to facilitate this past year, the year 2020, which of course was a very unique year due to the pandemic, okay? So number one, they had over 1.1 million people come and use their site. Let me say that again, 1.1 million people, Jews from all over the world and a sprinkling of non-Jews who are curious as well, but that's over a million people listening to Torah Anytime classes. They have classes in Hebrew, in Yiddish, in English, in Spanish, in Portuguese, right, in Russian. They have got it going on. So over 1.1 million people, the largest yeshivas in the world are probably Yeshivas Mir in Israel and Lakewood in BMG, based Manish Kavoa on Lakewood. Each one of those has, I don't know, maybe eight, 9,000 students, somewhere, somewhere between seven and 9,000 students. Torah Anytime had 1.1 million students this past year. They had over 118,000 people using the app, including myself. They had over 130,000 people calling in because you can actually dial in. A lot of people don't have internet in their homes and they're able to dial in. I am not one of those people, I've never dialed in. They had over 41 million minutes of classes listened to over the phone alone. They had over um, 118,000, here's exactly how many classes were accessed. 118,974 classes were accessed over 18 million times. <laughs> Boom, okay? Over 118,000 classes accessed 18 million times. So if you ever wanna wonder, like if you, if you want encouragement for this world, if you wanna know that the world is still a good place, if you wanna believe that there's hope for the world, Torah Anytime gives us that hope. By them providing such an incredible, incredible service, with such incredible, incredible uh, dissemination of Torah and so many people logging in to be inspired, we know that the world still has hope, even with all the craziness out there. So thank you to our anytime for everything that you do. Be sure to check them out. And thank you for those of us who are part of those millions of people who access Torah anytime and listen and learn together. Now, one final thing as well, you can also access all of my classes at partnersdetroit.org slash learn. Again, that's partnersdetroit.org slash learn. And uh, let us get right into the class. So we are now in the middle of Parshas Va'era. So we, we have been going through the Parsha this year, week by week, and we're middle of Parshas Va'era. So in Parshas Ve'era, in the beginning of the Parsha, it goes through the Psukim, the verses, go through a little bit of the lineage of the Jewish people leading up to Moses and Aaron. We're now about to see the story of the redemption of the Exodus start accelerating. In this week's Torah portion, in Parshas Ve'era, we read about seven of the 10 plagues. And because of that, we're starting to get very close into the stories of Moshe and Aaron. 
So very interestingly, thank you so much. My wonderful wife just brought me a wonderful tea, which I very much need. If you can hear my voice, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shakol Miyem Bidvaro. Wow, your butterfly was good to us. These teas. I mean, look, my wife's amazing at making tea, and I would recommend you make like any zinger from the Celestial Seasonings uh, recipe of zingers. They got raspberry zinger, lemon zinger, right? Get any zinger and then just fill it up with honey and lemon. Whew. And it's just so good. But the fact that their Bonusham makes these things that my wife can then make in such amazing teas is just what a bracha. Mm, what a bracha. Okay, now in Parshas Ve'era, it says the following. Uh, let me find it right over here. In chapter six, Pasuk. 26, verse 26. So 626, Parak Vav, Pasuk Chaf Vav. The Pasuk says, Hu Aaron Umoshe. This is Aaron Umoshe. Asher Amar Hashem Lahem, that Hashem said to them, Hotziu es Bnei Yisrael Me'eretz Mitzrayim. Take the Jewish people out of Eretz Mitzrayim. Hu Moshe Aaron. This is Moshe Aaron. Now it's a little bit weird, right? Sorry, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 26 says, it is Aaron and Moshe that Hashem said to them, take out the Jewish people from the land of Egypt, with their great numbers. These were the ones who spoke to Paromelech Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt, to remove the Jewish people from the land of Mitzrayim. Who? Moshe of Aaron. This is Moshe of Aaron. Now, the weird thing is, we start off saying this is Aaron and Moshe. We conclude by saying this is Moshe and Aaron. Is it Aaron and Moshe or Moshe and Aaron? What's the correct order? Okay. That's the question, guys. You got the question? The same verse. In verse 26, it says, it is Aaron and Moshe. Who's being brought up first? Aaron. Verse 27, it says, this is Moshe and Aaron. Who's being brought up first? Moshe. What is going on? Make up your mind. Who goes first, right? Who's better? Who's greater? Who's more important? Says Rashi to us. Who? Aaron and Moshe. Says Rashi, Yesh Mikomos Shemaktim Aaron Lamosha. There are some times when the Torah where Hashem puts the name of Aaron before the name of Moshe. Yesh Mikomos Shemaktim Moshe Aaron. In some places, Moshe goes before Aaron. Lo Marlacha Sheshkulim Keachad to tell you that they are both equal as one. So exactly like Cherna just said on the chat, they are equally great, and that's from the Mechilta. And that's a great answer, except for the fact that the Torah itself says that's not the case, right? Except for the fact that the Torah itself says in my entire house, there is no more faithful servant than Moses. Except for the fact that the Torah itself says that Moses was the most humble of all people. Except for the fact that the Torah itself says that there will never be a prophet of the Jewish people like Moses. So how do you tell me on one hand that Moses and Aaron are equal. And on the other hand, multiple times in the Torah, the Torah tells you straight out that Moses was the greatest. He was the most humble. He was the most trustworthy servant, right? He was the greatest prophet. So how do you, how do you, how do you put this together? How do you work this out? Okay. Now this question, someone sent me a voice text this week on my phone and asked me that question. And I gave him an answer that I'm about to give you. And then he sent me back a message a few days days later that his brother-in-law looked into it. And guess what? Rev Moshe Feinstein says it way better than I, but with, around this, along the same line. So Baruch Hashem, as we say, Baruch Shekivanti, I was able to think along the lines of Rav Moshe. And this is actually, this is not a new idea. It's an idea that's found in all of Judaism. Ah, Turna is hitting it out of the ballpark today. Wow, okay. The answer is, that to be as great as Moshe, you don't need to be the greatest prophet. You don't need to be the most humble person. And you don't need to be the person that God says is the greatest servant, the most loyal servant, right? That Hashem says about Moses that he's my most loyal servant. You don't got to be any of the above in order to be like as great as Moshe. You know what you got to be as great in order to be as great as Moshe? You got to be the best you that you can be. If you want to be as great as Moshe, Moshe was as great as Moshe could be. And all you got to be to be as great as Moshe is to be the greatest that you can be. 
And if you do that, then God looks at you as if you are equal to Moshe Rabbeinu. The Torah is telling you that Moshe and Aaron were shkulim ke'echad. They were both equal, even though Moshe had a greater effect on the world. Even though Moshe brought more to the table, Moshe brought down the Torah from Sinai. Moshe was the greatest prophet ever. Moshe Rabbeinu, he's the teacher of the entire Jewish people for all of eternity. Yet Aaron was just as equal in God's eyes because Aaron did the best that he could. Aaron was totally humble. When Moshe, Aaron's younger brother, was chosen as the main prophet to take the Jewish people out, what does it say? Was, was, was Aaron angry? Was he jealous? No. What does it say? He was happy. He will see you, says Hashem to Moshe, and he'll be so happy in his heart, in the depths of his heart, there won't be even a little bit of him that says, oh, come on, how come I didn't get the job? Why are they passing me up? It's not fair. I've been working for the company longer. What about my tenure? Don't I have tenure over here? No, that was not Moshe's response. Moshe was so happy. Sorry, Aaron was so happy. You got the job. You got the most amazing job. My little brother, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. Aaron was the Oev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. He loved peace and he ran after peace. He was the most humble of people. I mean, he, he wasn't the most humble people, obviously, because Moshe, the Torah says, was the most humble person. <clears throat> Moshe was called the Anamikola Adam. Moshe was called the humblest of all people, but yet Aaron did the best that he could. Let me tell you an amazing story. There was a man who used to give a shear in New York. And one of the attendees of this shear was an elderly Russian man. And this is not a recent story. This story goes back quite a ways. So this man, this probably goes back, this story happens probably in the 1930s or 40s. And in the class is this elderly Russian man. And every day he comes to the class and the rabbi is teaching Gemara. Now mind you, this man did not have a Torah education at all. But he comes to the class and he sits ramrod straight. He's sitting in his seat and he's listening and he's paying attention fully to the class. But the rabbi, he could tell the guy has no idea what's flying. You know, you have to be able to speak a little, you have to learn some Aramaic. You got to, you know, you can ask High Saffron about it, right? He's been doing the Dafyomi since the very beginning. It ain't easy to just start tackling Gemara like a beast. If you didn't grow up with it, if you weren't taught all the vocabulary words, it takes a long time to get the ebb and flow of Gemara. And if, unfortunately, if you've missed out on it in the first 50, 60 years of your life, it's very, very hard to get it. And the rabbi could tell, like sometimes you could tell, okay, this guy, he's slowly getting more and more proficient at it. He's getting better and better at it. He's learning, he's growing. But the rabbi, this guy is coming to his class and he sits there ramrod straight and he's listening. And he's listening and he's listening but nothing's going in. And finally, the rabbi decides, I, I got to ask him what's up. I got to find out what's going on. So the rabbi says to him one day, says him, Igor, tell me, how are you enjoying the class? Very much, rabbi. Very much, right? Okay, good. He says, do you understand the Gemara? Not really. You don't understand the Gemara at all? Not really. So he says to him, Igor, I just want to understand. You've been coming to this class now for years. And yet you're telling me that you don't understand a word. Can you explain to me why are you coming to this class? You spend here an hour. This is an hour class. And you're here every night for years. Why do you come if you don't understand what we're teaching? And listen to this answer. He says, I served in the Tsar's army. And in the Tsar's army, they would make us learn the entire royal family by heart. The Tsar and the Tsarina and the princes and the princesses and the, all the, 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 just the, the entire royal family. And they would grill us on it. They would grill us on it. Who is the czar's oldest niece? And you have to answer right away. It's princess, you know, whatever. 
you know, Isabella, whatever, whatever her name was. And you had to know all the answers. And they drilled it into our heads. And to this day, I could tell you the entire royal family of the Tsar. Of course, Tsar Nicholas was murdered with his entire family. But I can tell you to this day, the entire Russian imperial royal family says Igor to the rabbi, I'm an old man and I'm going to go to heaven soon. And I can't learn Gemara. I've tried. I want to be, I, I come, I do my services. I read my Tehillim, but I can't learn Gemara. I tried so many times, but I said, at least I can learn the names of the Jewish royalty. There's so many names that I want to know when I come up to heaven so that God can say to me, tell me who was written in the Mishnah. And I could say Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Eliezer. And he'll say to me, Igor, who was written in the Gemara? And I'll say to him, Ravina and Ravashi and Abaya and Rava and Rabba and Rav Papa. Unreal. A human being who understands that what I need to do is do the most that I can. I don't need to be the greatest Torah scholar. That just might not be in my cards. But if I give it all that I've got, if I work as hard as I can, then I am like Moshe Rabbeinu. Who Moshe Aaron? Who Aaron Moshe? Aaron and Moshe, Moshe, Aaron, they're in, their order is constantly being flipped because they are both equally, they are both equal in the eyes of the Lord. They're both equal in Hashem's eyes because they both put in everything they can. Let me tell you another story while we're at it. There was a shepherd who was an orphan. He lost both of his parents. And he had to work all the time in the fields and he helped support his younger siblings. You know, it's amazing. We have to just every single day recognize how much blessing we're surrounded by, right? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you, whoever I can see your camera, you're in homes that are heated. You've got food in your cabinets. Lots of delicious food. We have celestial seasonings, raspberry zinger tea with honey and lemon, right? Oh, we're so blessed. Baruch Hashem, we don't know hunger. We don't know hunger. But many generations knew hunger. People died of starvation. So this boy, his parents passed away and he took it upon himself to help support his younger siblings. And he was working as a shepherd and because of that, he didn't get to go to school. And what happened? Where's my phone ringing? You know that call is from probably? This is a call for the vehicle owner. <laughs> Hold on a second. Oh, how bad are those calls, right? This is a call for the vehicle owner. Is anybody actually buying insurance from a guy who's spamming you with a call? This is a call for the vehicle owner? Like, I don't understand why they're doing it still. Like, who's who's following through on that? Like, oh, wow, I'm so glad you called. I'm so glad you called me the vehicle owner. <laughs> in any case, in any case, so this man was a shepherd, his young boy, and he was out supporting his family. And he had all these flocks of sheep. And he had to watch them. And because of that, he didn't get a chance to go to school. He didn't get a chance to learn Aleph Bays. He didn't get a chance. He didn't learn anything. He didn't know anything. And he, he, when he was a kid, he learned Aleph Bays, but that, that's all. That's all he learned. On Rosh Hashanah, he was too embarrassed to go to Shul. Everyone is sitting in Shul and they're singing songs and they're, and they're saying prayers. And they've got their machsers that they're able to read from so fluently. And he can't read. He doesn't know the prayers. He's in the field with the sheep from morning until night. So he sat by a riverbank and he sang the Aleph Bays again and again. Aleph Bays, Vays, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav, Zayn, Ches, Tez, and Yud, Kof, Kof, Lamid, Mem, Nun, Samach, Ayin, Pei, and Fei. I don't know if he used that tune, but he used a different tune. But he sang the Aleph Bays and he said, Master of the Universe, 
This is all that I know. I never got a chance to learn how to read and write because I had to take care of my family. But Hashem, you know the proper prayers. So I'm going to give you the letters. Please, Hashem, you put it in order for the proper prayers. You turn it into the proper prayers. There was a Hasidic rabbi who was able to see through a vision that that prayer was the most beautiful prayer to Hashem since the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. And he told this over to his Hasidim. Again, what did he say? I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to say that the, all these long prayers and these piyutim, but I can say the Aleph base and I'll give you the Aleph base. You take care of the rest. So let's look at ourselves. Let's look at ourselves for a moment. We may not be able to be as wise as the great rabbis around us. We may not be able to learn as much Torah. But if we commit ourselves to working on ourselves and we put in everything we've got, we are equal to Moshe Rabbeinu. That is lesson number one. So let's go out there, by the way. Let's go out there and be Moshe Rabbeinu. It ain't easy, but it's in your reach. It ain't easy, but it's in your reach. That's idea number one I want to share with you from this week's Torah portion. Next. There is a, uh, there's a man who buys a parrot and he buys this parrot from a, from a pirate, parrot from a pirate. <laughs> and of course he brings the parrot, the parrot home and the parrot starts using not, not nice language. Unfortunately, the parrot grew up around pirates all the time. So he uses dirty language, but it's very inappropriate. So the man tells the parrot, you got to stop with these, you got to stop talking like this. You don't hear that around here. No more talking like that. And the parent says, okay, you know, but then whenever guests come over, the parrot starts talking inappropriately. So finally, the guy gets so angry at the parrot. He says, listen here, you parrot. I'm having guests over today. If you use inappropriate language, I'm putting you in the freezer for half an hour. Parrot says, okay. Anyway, the guests come over and sure enough, they're in the middle of having lunch and suddenly the parrot starts saying, just not talking like a nice boy, very dirty language. So when the guests leave, the guy says to the parrot, listen here, parrot, I told you, now it's time. And he takes the parrot and he puts him in the freezer and he closes the door. Half hour later, he comes out, he takes the parrot out and the parrot's sitting there, he's like, okay, 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 I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. He says, but tell me, what did the chicken do? All right, what did the chicken do, right? Because he sees the chicken next to him in the uh, freezer. So when we talk about animal abuse, let's talk about one of the plagues that happens in this week's Torah portion. Source number one, or number two, or whatever it is. Exodus 8.2, Shmos, Parakhas, Pasuk, Beis. Here we go. So we already passed the blood. We're not going to do the blood this year. We're now talking about the, the Maka, the, the plague of the Tzvardea. So Moshe warns Paro about this terrible plague that's going to be with the frogs. Hashem says to Moshe, tell Aaron to pick up his staff onto the, the rivers and the Yorim, the canals, and the reservoirs, and bring up the Tzfardaim on the land of Egypt. And Aaron picks up his hand over the waters of Egypt. And the Tzvardeya came up. And it covered the land of Mitzrayim. Now, the word for frogs in plural is Tzvardeim. Matter of fact, we've seen that right here in the Pasuk. It says that when Moshe was warning Paro, he's saying, And in you, and in your people, and in all your servants, the Tzvardeim, the frogs, will come up. And furthermore, Hashem told Moshe to tell Aaron to pick up his stick against the 
the waters, v'ha'al es im and bring up the frogs, the frogs. But yet when it says they finally came up, it says v'ta'al hatzfardeya. When they came up, it says the frog came up. So this is, of course, talked about by the Medrash, Tanchuma, which is quoted by Rashi. It says Rashi, Tzfardea achas haisa, one big frog came up, and it, they kept beating it. And every time they beat it, it would let out a shriek and streams of thousands of frogs would come out of its mouth. So you got this massive big frog, and every time you hit it, ah, just like this, like out of a horror film, you're like, you know, open up with his mouth and thousands and thousands of frogs come up and they kept beating it and beating it until the entire land of Egypt was covered in, in frogs. How, how do you understand that? Right? Like there's a, there's a certain level of self-preservation over here, right? You see that every time you beat the Tzvardeya, it opens its mouth and it lets out tens of thousands of more tzvardeim, more frogs. Wouldn't somebody say, hey guys, we should probably stop hitting the frog, right? That might've been a good thought, right? But no, let's keep hitting the frog more. Right, you don't need to be a brain surgeon to figure out there's a recipe here that's not working. There's a formula that's having an inverse effect of what we want, you know? Like maybe you're a supporter of a certain cause and every time you try to act violently, it does not work out for the person you support. Maybe it's time to stop being violent because that's not working. <laughs> it's not working out well for you, right? So stop the violence, right? Maybe that would be like a simple thing to understand. But no, evidently it's not so simple. So how, how did this work? How could it be that they just kept hitting the frog and hitting the frog and hitting the frog? And the answer is, that what you do 90% of the time is dictated by one trait and one trait alone. And that is habit. 90% of what you do is based on what your habits are. A smoker doesn't think before he takes out a cigarette. Should I smoke? Should I not smoke? They've been smoking for years. They take out a cigarette and they light up. It's not even, it's not even a thought, right? Somebody who cracks their knuckles, which I've got nothing left. I crack my knuckles. And by the way, for all of those who think when you crack your knuckles, you end up getting arthritis, there was a man who cracked one side of his hands for like his whole life and the other side he didn't crack at all. And he lived to be like, like 89 or something like that. And he had no problem with arthritis in either of his hands, just for the record. So if all of you are busy telling your grandchildren or your children, don't crack your knuckles because you're gonna get arthritis, it's just not true. There's no scientific data to support that. Okay. Now, so what happens, most of what we do, I don't think about cracking my knuckles. I just crack my knuckles, right? Most of what we do is based on habit, right? What do you drink? Do you drink tea? Do you drink coffee, Coca-Cola, H2O? Do you like cereal and milk in the morning? Do you like oatmeal, right? Do you, if you're an oatmeal person in the morning, do you make a decision every morning? Hmm, should I have oatmeal or cereal? No, you're just an oatmeal person. If you're a cereal person, you're just a cereal person. If you're a coffee person, you're a coffee person. If you're a two-scooper, you're a two-scooper. If you're an instant coffee, you're an instant coffee. You don't make decisions. Most of what you do every day, you're not even making decisions. You just do what you do because that's what you do. Now, that, of course, applies to character traits as well. Are you kind and friendly? Do you say good morning to people when you pass them in the hall? or do you not? Do you yell when things don't go your way, or do you not? Do you get angry at customer service reps when they don't give you what you want, or not? The reality is, is that most of what we do is controlled by habit, and often we know that what we're doing is causing us so much pain, but we can't stop. Think about all the parents that just yell and scream at their kids and they see what it's doing to their children and they can't stop. Think about that. Now, it's like every time you yell at your children, they withdraw further and further away from you. But yet you can't stop 
It's the same thing as the frog. Every time you tell everybody else around you what they're doing wrong, you're the guy who feels unnaturally compelled to tell everybody else what they're doing wrong all the time. You're the guy who always tells the end of the story before the person telling the story finishes it, right? You know what I'm talking about? You know, you know that guy? Someone's in the middle of telling a story and the guy says, oh yeah, that's, and then the end he goes, he jumps off the building, right? Or whatever, whatever the ending is, but he gets saved, right? Oh yeah, I know that story. Who likes that guy? Who likes the guy who tells the end of the story? Who likes the guy who says, oh, I heard that already? Nobody. It doesn't win you any friends. It doesn't influence people. <laughs> right? So the bottom line is, but we do it all the time because that's what we're used to doing. The Egyptians keep hitting that the Egyptians have no impulse control. They were a nation that was known as Stufe Zima, which means a wash in immorality. They have got no impulse control. Every time they hit the Tzvardea, they see a stream of thousands of frogs coming up, but they can't hold themselves back. And they're just hitting it. There's just a frenzy of Egyptian officers and people just beating this, this Tzvardea until the entire land of Egypt is covered in frogs. And Hashem is showing, he's mocking the Egyptians. He's mocking them. Look at yourself. You're so pathetic. You have such a lack of self-control that even when you see with such clarity what it's doing to you, you can't stop. People are smokers or get bronchitis five times a year. They just smoke right through it. They can't make it up steps. They can't make it down steps. Smoke right through it. You see what it's doing to you, but you can't stop. How do we change this? If we can't stop, if habit controls 90% of what we do, how do we change this? The answer is take inventory, starting number one. Al Kane, this is a great verse that's brought down by the Mestils of Sharm. Al Kane, Yomra Moslem, Bo Cheshbon. Therefore, the rulers say, come to Cheshbon, which they translate homiletically. Those who want to rule over their character traits say, come and make a cheshbon hanefesh. Come and make an accounting of your life. Come and take stock of your life. What habits do you have that are destructive? Write them down. Bo cheshbon. You want to be a ruler? You want to rule over your habits as opposed to your habits ruling over you? Bo cheshbon. Come and make an accounting. What are my habits? Which ones are the ones that I most want to remove from my life? What steps can I take to remove them from my life? What tiny little bits of steps forwards can I take to start working? Let's say I'm a cynical person and I'm always criticizing. I go to a kiddish, I go to a wedding and I come home and I tell everybody what was wrong with the wedding. You know those people? Oh, honey, how was the wedding tonight? It was all right. The smorgasbord was a little bit light. You know, the band was kind of, I don't know, they were, they were too loud or the band was too quiet. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. You have people, no matter where they go. And then when they come back, you say, how was it? It's like, you can rely upon them. They're going to say something negative. The food was too bland, the food was too spicy, the music was too loud, the music was too quiet. There was too many people there, there was too few people there. Parking was too far away. They didn't salt the sidewalk in front of the wedding hall, <laughs> which has nothing to do with the wedding. It's got nothing to do with the wedding, it's got to do with the wedding hall. You come home from the wedding, how was the wedding, honey? It was okay, but you know what? They didn't salt in front of the wedding hall. And everyone was coming in, it was all slushy. What's wrong with you? So if you find that you're a cynical person and you're always saying cynical things, if your first response to any event is cynicism, come, write down, write down what you're doing wrong and say, here's what I'm going to do. Every day I'm going to say one compliment to somebody about something. Somebody about something. Oh, wow. 
That's a nice suit you got today. Wow, is that new? It looks beautiful. Or, oh, your son is just amazing. He's such a sweet boy. Or, I went to the wedding today. It was just perfect. It was such a simcha. It was so joyous. Everyone was glowing. And so on and so forth. And you start tracking yourself. You start tracking yourselves. You've got to switch a habit. You need to track yourself. Make yourself a tracking sheet. I just found out there's an incredible app. It's called Streaks. Streaks. And it costs $5, but it's worth it. And you just, you put in what you want to track and it will give you reminders throughout the day. So if you want to give every day, make sure you give some charity, some charity at some point, it will give you notifications throughout the day. Just make sure you just put a quarter in charity. If you want to make sure that you comment people and you put, you make the goals for yourself and it will remind you. So the bottom line is start tracking your success and slowly you could turn around a habit. Rabbi Stroll Salanter said, it's harder to change one character trait than to learn the whole Torah. It's not easy. And the Egyptians learned that firsthand. When the Egyptians were just beating this frog to their greatest detriment, but they just simply couldn't stop because character traits are so powerful in our lives. But if we actually take cheshbon, if we actually make a cheshbon on nefesh, if we take accounting and we take stock of what we do and we write it down and we track ourselves, we can see ourselves turning our ship around. And it takes a while. You know, moving a cruise ship, moving a cruise ship ain't easy. If you want to move a race car, you could turn it around in a donut in a little street. You could, it's got such a great turning radius. You could turn a race car around in a street, turn around like donuts. But if you want to move a cruise ship, it's steadily going at 20 miles an hour. You've got to take, it takes miles and miles and miles and miles to change it. But eventually you get there and you become a different human being. Imagine you could change your cynicism to positivity. Your life would be so much better. Right now, a life of cynicism is like a life just beating the tzvardeya, beating the frog all the time. So that is idea number one. How long does it take to change a, a, a habit? There's many different opinions on this. If you ask the various experts, it's called streaks, by the way, streaks with an S at the end. The experts, there's different people. Some people say 21 days. Some people say 30 days. Some people say 40 days. Some people say 90 days, right? Whatever it is, I can assure you that changing a habit is worth all the time you can possibly invest in it. Uh, I'll tell you a story. There was a, uh, there was a, somebody I know who was going to a support group for parents whose children were rebelling and, you know, leaving the Torah away. And one of the parents who already Baruch Hashem had seen their child come back to the fold and come back to being part of the family, one of these uh, parents, and they were still coming to the support group because that group had given them much support when they were going through the difficulty. So they wanted to come now as somebody who had successfully navigated it and give support to those who were still going through it. So at one point they asked if they could speak and they were talking about some difficulties they were having with their kid. And they said the following, they went to a Dayan in Israel. A Dayan is a, is a judge. And this Dayan's name is Dayan Usher Weiss. And he's not known for being like one of these lightweight rabbis who just tells you what you want to hear. Not at all. So they went to him and they described their whole story. They had a large family with a lot of children. I think it was nine children. And all their children, Baruch Hashem, were amazing and studious and, and good and all, all that jazz. But one of their kids was just a lot of trouble. He was leaving the house and he was going places on Shabbos, coming back smelling like smoke on Shabbos, you know, which is forbidden and very hurtful to the parents. And they didn't know what to do. Like, what did we do wrong and how can we fix it? So this rabbi said to them, look, I'm gonna tell you something that's gonna be very, very, very hard for you to do. But I can assure you that if you do it, you will see a dramatic, dramatic change in your child. They said, anything, you tell us what it is. He said, not so quick with the anything because 
This is going to be the hardest thing I'm ever going to ask you to do in your entire life or anybody ever asked you to do. For the next three years, you cannot say a single word of criticism to that child. Not a single word. Not if he leaves his room a wreck. Not if he leaves dirty dishes in the sink. Not if he walks into your house on Shabbos smelling like smoke. Not a single word of criticism for three years. You do that and you'll get your child back. And the mother said, it was the hardest thing my husband and I ever did in our entire lives. But we have our child back. His whole life changed. He suddenly just about a year in, just on his own, started changing his whole life and turning it around for the better. And he's back. And he's learning and he's growing. And we can't, we can't believe what happened there. Maimonides asks the following question. What's better, to give $1,000 to one charity where you can make a real difference or to give 1,000 singles to 1,000 different charities? Answers Maimonides, it's better to give, Maimonides is the Rambam. Answers Maimonides, it's better to give 1,000 single dollar bills to 1,000 people or charities rather than giving $1,000 to a single charity, even though that might have a bigger impact Because when you give $1,000 in singles, you're training yourself to do this motion. Give, 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 give. You're embedding in yourself the habit of giving. And there's no more important muscle in the world for you to develop than this muscle. The muscle of give, 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 give. So the more you give, the more of a giver you become. I remember as a child, my mother would give us all a vitamin, I think it was the size of like a horse vitamin. I'm not sure if it was really a human vitamin or a horse vitamin. Um, like my kids, my, the kids in my class were eating like, uh, were eating like Flintstone, you know, <laughs> vitamins, like sugar, raspberry, cherry, grape flavored vitamins. And I'm eating vitamins that either were horse vitamins or tasted like horse vitamins. And, uh, but I love my mother and I'm very healthy because of that. And she would give us a penny and she would say, a penny for your neshama and a penny for your goof, right? Which means, sorry, a vitamin, I'm sorry, a vitamin for your neshama and a vitamin for your goof. The goof means body and neshama means soul. So the vitamin that she was giving us to eat, that was the vitamin for our goof, for our body to be healthy. But the vitamin that she was giving us, the penny to give into stucco when we got to school, that was a vitamin for our soul. And every single day, my mother made sure that every one of, our, of her kids at least once a day, use this muscle every day. And we try to, around our dinner table, we try to every day make sure that we give charity. And again, it's not about the number we're giving, right? We give, I think everyone gives three nickels, right? So we have six kids, Kinahara, and two parents. If you do the math, it's a total of $1.20, right? It's not about the number, but it's the fact that I want my children to have this muscle because 90% what you do is by habit, and let's build those right habits. Okay, next. Um, okay. Give me one second. <clears throat> Okay. All righty. Next, let's go to chapter. Uh, again, we're still in Shmos. Perek Ches, Sukim Yud Beis, and Yud Gimel. And now we're talking about the plague of the lice. Now, interestingly enough, the way it works is. In, in the series of plagues, Moshe warns about one and two, not about three. He warns about four and five, not about six. He warns about seven and eight, not about nine. Okay? So what happens? Um, 
Vayomer Hashem al Moshe. And Hashem says to Moshe, Emor el Aaron, say to Aaron, Neteis matcha, stretch forth your staff, Vahach es afar ha'aretz, and hit the dirt of the land. Vahaya lekinim bechol aretz mitzrayim. And the dirt itself will turn into lice in all of the land of Egypt. Vayasu kain, and they did so. Vayet Aaron es yado, and Aaron stretched forth his hand, bimatehu, with his stick, vayach es afar ha'aretz, and he hit the earth, the dirt of the land, vatehi hakinam ba'adam uvabahema, and it turned into lice on the people and on the plants. Now here's the weird thing. Who did the action of striking the earth? Moshe, right? Specifically, we know that Hashem told Moshe to tell Aaron to do it. We know that it's very important. Moshe does not hit the water by the first two plagues. The plague of the blood and the plague of the frogs were started by hitting the water. When the water was hit, it turned into blood. And when the water was hit, the, the massive frog came out that got beaten and turned into millions of frogs. And when the earth was hit, it turned into the, uh, the, the lice. Now, the reason why Moshe could not do those actions was because the earth and the water both played a role in helping Moshe. The water helped Moshe when he was put into a little basket and sent down the river, and the water provided him safety, and the earth provided for him cover when he killed the Egyptian and he hid the body in the earth. Now, eventually he had to run away anyway, but for the little measure of comfort and hiding that it gave him, Moshe could not hit the earth. Therefore, he had to tell Aaron to hit the earth. So Hashem tells Moshe, you tell Aaron to hit the earth. But then the next verse says, Vayasu Cain, and they did so. What are you talking about, they? It wasn't they did so. He did so. Aaron hit, right? What do you mean they did so? Hashem tells Moshe, Moshe, tell Aaron to hit. Aaron goes and hits. And what does the Pusik say? Vayasu Cain, and they did so. Who is the they in they? There's no they here. It's a he, and he did so. Says the, Skl- the Skalener Rebbe. Says the Skalener Rebbe, it teaches us that when you are the inspiration behind doing something, it's as if you literally did it yourself as well. Again, if you are the inspiration behind doing something, Moshe told Aaron to hit the earth, and because of that, he was the inspiration behind Aaron hitting the earth, and therefore the Torah treats it as if he himself hit the earth. Now, listen to this amazing story. I've told this one before, but it, 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 it's worth telling again. <clears throat> there was a man, a Jewish boy who grew up in Brooklyn in the 70s, and he felt like Brooklyn was stifling, which by the way, I hear that many people still feel today. But he felt like Brooklyn was stifling. There's no trees, there's no lawns, there's no nature. This, this boy was just, you know, people have different natures. People have different character traits. Certain people just have a, a, a calling for nature that is just an undescribable calling for nature. Baruch Hashem, this past week, I had the incredible merit of being in, uh, in, in Montana. I was in, in Big Sky, Montana on, on a trip um, learning with young Jewish professionals and college students from all over America. And let me tell you, nature is just so majestic. I don't blame somebody for wanting to be out of nature. Now, I'm the kind of person, I, I like to visit nature, right? There are people who like to visit nature and there are people who like to live in nature. I like to visit nature. The same way I like to visit New York, right? <laughs> I feel the same way about New York as I feel about nature. It's fun to go for a while. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. But, excuse me, but let me come back to my beloved Detroit. Hopefully, Eric Estrella soon. So, says Ariel over here on our chat, who lives in New York. He says, it is stifling. Okay, good. So, this man felt stifled by New York, and he's like, I got to get out. And I, this whole religion, he, he didn't grow up religious. No, no, no. He did grow up religious. He felt stifled by religion. He felt stifled by, by New York. And when he finally graduates high school, he gets on a bus, and he just goes west. Fievel goes west. You know what I'm saying? He takes his bus as far as he can go, and he ends up with the Blackfeet Indians, okay, who are spread across Montana, Idaho. So he ends up joining the Blackfeet Indians, 
And his main teacher was a guy named White Calf, his Rebbe. For five years, he lived amongst the Blackfeet Indians. And eventually he learned, these were like the hardcore ones. He didn't want to live on the ones who are just living in, you know, the, the more modernized lifestyle. He wanted to be out on the range. And he loved it. But somehow he felt like he just didn't, something was not right for him. And after five years, he went to his, his Rebbe, White Calf, and he said, White Calf, he says, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm not feeling, I'm feeling a little emptiness. I'm feeling like a, a, a gnawing inside of my heart. What should I do? So they said to him, White Calf said to him, look, there's this incredibly wise Indian woman. Her name is Elva White Fe One Feather. Elva One Feather. She lives in Olgala, South Dakota. She lives somewhere so deep out in the country where there's no roads to even get there. Like you've got to just travel a lot of it on foot. But if you can get there and you can see her and you can talk to her, she's a wise woman. She should be able to give you whatever you're looking for. Okay, fine. He sets out with his beat up 1952 Chevy and his half dog, half wolf called Chica, which who was incredibly loyal to him and had saved his life a few times. And he was like, just at the hip connected to this dog. And he sets out and he goes to South Dakota and he pulls over to the side of the road and he starts hiking through the roads. And he was, again, he, he knew how to hunt. He knew he had been living amongst the native Americans for a long enough time. And he goes hunting and walking and traveling. And finally he gets to this place. And sure enough, there's like a small little like outpost of Blackfeet Indians. And there is where Elva Onefeather is living. Now, mind you, Elva Onefeather is living in total squalor. She's got like a ton of kids and a lot of them are living like in, a, in an old car that somehow had made it out there to the middle of South Dakota and was like, just like at this point, non-functional rusted apart car, like a 1930s big like Nez Pierce or whatever it was, not Nez Pierce, Pierce Arrow. Nez Pierce is the name of a Native American tribe. Like one of these old like big Pierce Arrow cars was just sitting there and like her kids were living in it, it was filthy. Um, he was told that he has to wait. You can't just come in and just suddenly see Elva One Feather. You got to wait a few days until she's ready for you and she'll call you. But fine, he's sitting there in this area. He's living with them for a few days. Finally, Elva One Feather calls him in and he goes into the teepee and there's all kinds of incense and smoke going on. Anyway, he tells his problem to Elva One Feather and she says, she says to him, she looks at him, she says, you are not one of us and you never will be. You are from the people of the Holy White Rock Man. Now, the Holy White Rock Man, he didn't know what that referred to. He assumed it means Moshe, who's described as the man sitting on the rock when Moshe, at his highest point, got his greatest revelation when he was sitting on the rock. Um, so, and she says, if you were Christian, I would let you stay, but you need to go back to your people. Wow. Wow. What's he going to do? Elva Onefeather said it. You got to. You got to follow through. So he travels all the way back to Brooklyn. You can imagine he grew up in a religious home. He shows up in his stringy Native American clothing with a half wolf, half dog. You know, <laughs> as it is, religious folk don't often, we don't have a lot of uh, pets and definitely not a lot of half, half wolf, half dogs. That's not the most common pet for like a, a Torah observant family. Maybe the most common pet is a goldfish or something. You know what I'm saying? So he comes in and his parents are very, very happy for him that he's coming back. And I say, sure, come on back. We're so happy to see you. And he says, they say, let's help you find yourself. Why don't you go meet with a few rabbis? So they make a whole list of rabbis for him. And he starts going to them. And every rabbi he talks to, they just don't get him. They don't understand who he is. They don't understand what he's all about. They just don't get him. Almost at the bottom of the list was a rabbi named Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld. Allah Shalom of blessed memory. The founder of my alma mater, Sharyashiv. The, actually, he's, he's on my wall right now. Someone, uh, Chaim Fink, Rabbi Chaim Fink from Partners, his brother-in-law made a beautiful, beautiful drawing of Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld, and I've always wanted a picture of Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld on my wall. And Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Fink brought it over. I have incredible Akarsa Tovtim for bringing it over. Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld was an absolute amazing man. I actually recommend highly that you read the book Rabbi Shlomo. Um, 
about Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld. It has a purple cover. You can find it on Amazon. I believe it was written by, I don't know who it was written by, but Chaim, I'm sure, Hi Saffron will tell you in a moment. Okay, now, maybe even put up the link for Amazon if you'd like to buy it. But it, it tells you the story. And Rabbi Freifeld, to me, is just like, he was a person who just understood our generation. Really, really one of the greatest shepherds of our, of our modern era. So <clears throat> this man makes an appointment to meet with Rabbi Freifeld. He comes in. Rabbi Freifeld was a very, very busy man. And he starts telling Rabbi Freifeld, I spent the last five years on a reservation of the Blackfeet Indians. And uh, he's telling, explaining to him this. And Rabbi Freifeld says, really? Wow, what do you do? He starts asking him about how they fish and about how they hunt. He's just so fascinated. He just wants to learn more about what this guy has to say and what his life was all about. And Rabbi Freifeld says, listen, he says, I'm so, so sorry. I have a pressing, urgent matter that I need to take care of. But I so, I'm so fascinated by your story. Can you come back tomorrow, please? I really would, it would mean so much to me if you come back tomorrow. This guy says, sure, of course. No one's taken such interest in him in a very, very, very long time. And Rabbi Freifeld was very charismatic. When he talked to you, you could tell it. Not he treated you like you were the most important thing in the world to him when you were talking to him. You were the most important thing when he was talking to you. So this man says, sure, I'll come back tomorrow. The next day, and it's it, it it amazing, the, the questions he, my friend was asking him, how do you know if elk tracks are fresh or old? When is the best time to catch deer? How do you process hides? You know, so like these are the questions he was asking him, like, you know, questions that only a Blackfeet Indian would know how to answer best. The next day, this boy comes back to yeshiva, and it happens to be the next day was a bris. And the yeshiva is sitting down at the meal, and Rabbi Freifeld sees the boy in the, in, in the doorway, says, come on over here, come on over here. Yeah, yeah, come here, come here. He sits the boy right down next to him at the bris at the head table. Come sit right next to me. This guy's wearing like this leather clothing, <laughs> stringy hair. I don't know about the hygiene habits of the Blackfeet Native Americans in general. But this guy, he probably still smelled like Chica. Anyway, after the bris is over, I forever says, come to my office, let's talk more. And they're talking more and more and more about the Native Americans. And somehow I forever just is spot on. He really gets this guy. After speaking to so many rabbis, dozens of rabbis, and no one understood this guy, Rabbi Freifeld really, really gets him. And finally, Rabbi Freifeld gets called out of the office for a quick phone call. He says, I'll be right back. And the boy notices behind Rabbi Freifeld's desk is a book on the floor. Now, you know, a rabbi would never put a holy book on the floor, ever, ever. What do we do when a book falls on the floor? God forbid if a chumash or any safer falls on the floor, we pick it up and we give it a kiss. You know, by the way, a reform rabbi once said to me, you know what the difference between me and you is? I said, it's probably a lot of things, but what? He says, the difference between me and you is that if a chumash, right, one of these things falls on the floor, we're both going to pick it up, but you'll give it a kiss. <laughs> I said to me, you're right. You're 100% correct. That is 100% true. So he notices a book on the floor. He says, the rabbi would never allow a holy book to be on the floor. What's going on? So he picks up the book and he opens it up. And the book is a book all about the life and times of the Blackfeet tribe. And he realized that Rabbi Freifeld, the day before, when he was talking to him, he realized that I didn't, that Rabbi Freifeld didn't understand this guy so well. So he said to him, can you come back tomorrow? In the meantime, he went to the library and he read an entire book about the Blackfeet Indians. This is a great rabbi. He doesn't have time to read books about the Blackfeet Indians, but he says, if it's important to this guy, it's important to me. That is what Rabbi Freifeld was. If it's important to you, it's important to me. Rabbi Freifeld read a book all about the Blackfeet Indians just so he could relate to another Yid. This Yid felt so loved, so appreciated so cared about that he came back and he joined the yeshiva. And today, Baruch Hashem, he has a full and very rich Jewish life with children. Vayasu Cain, and they did so. Who did it? Moshe or Aaron? Aaron did it. Moshe inspired it. We treat it as if they both did it. Every good deed that this guy did. 
Every good deed that this Blackfoot Indian did for the rest of his life, Rabbi Freifeld is getting credit for. We all have a person who gave us vision, who gave us warmth and inspired us to do good. We can be that person for somebody else. We can be that person for somebody else. Should I tell you guys one more story? Why not, right? Okay, I mean, if you gotta go, you gotta go, no problem. But it's just one more story, it's such a great story. There was a, a rabbi who used to go collecting money for yeshivas in Israel. And he used to travel all over the world. There was a man in South Africa who was a atheist, an avowed atheist. But for some reason, he would give a lot of money to yeshiva. Yeshiva's in Israel. And this rabbi would come to him every year and he would welcome the rabbi in and he would treat him so nicely and he'd give him a nice donation. So the rabbi didn't want to press his luck, but finally he said to him, excuse me, if you don't mind telling me, how come you give such nice donations to yeshivas if you, if you yourself are an atheist, you probably are an atheist, you always tell me you're an atheist. So why are you giving money to yeshivas where we teach religious dogma? So he said, I'll tell you why. He said, when I was a kid, I lived in Europe and as the Haskalah, as the enlightenment, the endarkenment of the Jewish people started spreading around, where we started, so many people started studying different philosophies and thinking they were smarter than all the people that came before them, and suddenly discovered that the, the freedoms available to those who claim they're an atheist, right? At the end of the day, they discover the freedoms of those who are an atheist, and suddenly everyone started becoming atheists. It was very in vogue. All you gotta do, you wanna eat on Yom Kippur? become an atheist. You don't want to daven and shul three times a day, become an atheist, right? It's, it's a very, very, very good excuse for a person to be an atheist. So he said, I became an atheist, but my parents were still angry at me. They wanted me to go to yeshiva, but my yeshiva threw me out. So they sent me to another yeshiva, my parents, and they sent me to Radin. Radin was where the yeshiva, where the Chavetz Chaim was over there. The Chavetz Chaim was one of the great sages who lived in the previous generation. In the 1930s, he died. He lived from the 1800s to 1930s. And I went to Radin and I went to the yeshiva and at the yeshiva, somehow someone discovered what my philosophical bent was. And the Chavetz Chaim himself was part of a group of rabbis and they said, this man cannot be allowed to be in our building. He cannot be allowed to be in our building for another 10 minutes. He's poisoned, right? In those days, unfortunately, many, many yeshivas saw hundreds or thousands of people go from straight from being in yeshiva to becoming atheist, to becoming enlightened again, and, and then walking away from Judaism. So they made a decision that I could not be in the building for 10 minutes, and that decision was based on the Chavetz Chaim. That was his ruling. He said, so they sent me out of the building. They said, I'm sorry, not, not only can you not come to our yeshiva, you cannot be in this building. You need to leave. I ran back to the train station to catch a train back to my town, but the last train for the day had left. Now I'm wandering around. I try to sleep in the in this train station. It's freezing cold. And I'm wandering around. It's late at night. And I just, I need to find a house with some warmth and freezing cold. I see one house at the edge of town. There's a light on. I go knock on the door. And who's there? Chavetz Chaim himself. Chavetz Chaim himself. And he had just kicked me out of the yeshiva. I said, okay, I'm sorry, Rabbi. I'm, I'll, I'm, have a good night. He says, no, no, no. What's going on? He says, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, can't, I can't get a train back and I'm freezing cold. So I, I, would, I, would, I, I know you didn't want me in Yeshiva. Can I maybe, can I catch a, can, can, I, can I stay here and just sleep in the warmth of your house? He says, of course, come on in, come on in, please. Chavot Chaim invited me in. He made me a warm tea. He put up some soup for me. And the whole time, he was just talking to me with such pleasant pleasantness and such warmth and such smiles on his face. It's like, I can't believe this is the guy who kicked me out of the building today. This is the guy who kicked me out of the building today. And then when it came time for me to sleep, he took me and he put me on the one bed in the house. I guess his wife had already passed away. The Chavetz wife passed away. And he put me on the one bed of the house. He said, don't worry, I'm just learning right now. And he offered me his coat because it was still cold in the house. In those days, people didn't have money to keep their houses you know, warm, roaring at 72 degrees all, all night long in the winter. So it got really, really cold. Chavetz Chaim offered me his coat. I said, no, 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 Chavetz Rabbi, you keep it, you keep it. He said, okay, fine. And then I went to bed 
And 20 minutes after I went to bed and the Chavetz Chaim thought I was asleep, the elderly tzaddik, the Chavetz Chaim, came into the room and he took off his jacket and he laid it down on top of me to keep me warm. And every 15, 20 minutes, I could hear him learning in the dining room and every 15, 20 minutes, he would come in and he would check to see if the coat was still snugly around me. Says that man, I may not believe in God, but the warmth of the Chavetz Chaim's coat still warms me to this day. And that's why I give to yeshivas because I know that's what he would want me to do. Vayasu Cain, and they did so. Who was giving to the yeshivas? This man was certainly giving to the yeshivas, but so was the Chavetz Chaim. Because what we inspire people to do is considered as if we did it ourselves. Let's do great things. Let's keep track of our character traits. Let's start turning the ship around. Let's bring more positivity positivity into our lives. Let's make sure that we are a positive force in everyone around us lives. And by doing so, not only will we get the reward for what we do, but we will get the reward for everything we inspire in others as well. Thank you so much and have a wonderful week. Give me one second. I just need to turn off the video camera and then I'll come back.